listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. Back before MTV, there was a cable network in my hometown of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, that would play videos from 5 to 6 on weekdays. Well, thing, back then, there wasn't a ton of videos, so you'd see these videos two or three times a week. And the one band that caught me and all my friends' eyes, and I've been a fan since 1980, it was Squeeze. And they would play, uh, they would play Another Nail on My Heart with a video where pushing the piano through the city. And we always thought the lead singer was such a cool guy. And he's on my show today, and it's, uh, how you doing, Glenn? I'm, I'm very good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, Steve. You know, I, you know, I think back, and, you know, I'm 58, well, I'll be 58, and Squeeze has been a big part of music in my life, of my getting to high school and college. When you look back to that time, like in 1980 and 79, what was the scene like for you guys in England becoming a popular band? Um, <laughs> well, when I look back on it, I think that uh, it's amazing that I thought at the time that it was inevitable that we would succeed. I had no doubt in my mind, which is sort of uh, scary when I look back on it and know how many things could have gone wrong. But uh, so at that time, I would have said I completely expected it. I sort of I look back now and think, well, you know, I know we were good, but that doesn't mean you get success. There are plenty of people who are really great who haven't had that, so. It was a good time for us. Now, how, what got you into music? And, and you know, what, what was there? Was there a defining moment that you said, this is what I want to do, or was it just you just love music? How did you start this career? I think that I was one of those lucky people who, uh, you know, I didn't have any training, and, you know, my parents loved music, but... Um, so there was always music on in the house. And, and what I know now that I didn't know then is that I could hear music like really well and it would touch my soul and obsess me from a really young age. So it was the most natural thing in the world for me to want to um, wanna learn to play you know, piano, guitar, to the satisfaction of being able to play whatever songs I was listening to at the time, and that's what I taught myself to do. So it was, you know, it was the beginning of an, an obsession with me, and I didn't know that that's what it was. I thought everyone would feel the same. Isn't that weird? I mean, some people will see it, like me, I get moved by music, but I suck at music, so I don't even try to play. But it's just amazing, you know, when, as, as you from the outside, looking in someone like you and other great songwriters, when you hear, bless you, when you hear the, just, you sit there and go, how did they come up with that? I mean, it's just, do you see things differently or hear things differently? I mean, what makes you sit there and go, okay, I'm going to put this here in the song and put this here. I mean, how, is that just, uh, just in, 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 an instinct or what? You know, uh, let's say, I'm sorry, it's not going to work. Uh, let me just turn my phone off. Um. Sorry, Carly, I'm right in the middle of stuff. Um, I completely got lost there. Can you repeat the question? I'm so sorry. Is it is it instinct? Like when you write a song, when you do the... Oh, okay. 
Yeah, uh, it, it, it is. I, I tell you what leads to that. I also didn't know this. Is that, um, I spent a reasonable amount of time growing up by myself, and I didn't feel uh, bad about that. I mean, in my room, not not literally by myself, but so learning to, you know, trying to learn to play stuff <clears throat> and then to write didn't feel like a big stretch. And in fact, the first song I wrote was one that I dreamt. Um, and I dreamt it with a full arrangement. And it wasn't me singing it. It was a, it was a woman singing it. Uh, it was a quite sort of Phil Spectresque, massive production and I wrote the song uh, I mean I remembered the song and wrote it and then added bits to it and uh, you know I was I was 10 or 11 and, and up until that point I hadn't thought about writing from that point onwards I did think about writing you know my lyrics were really that of an 11 year old let's put it that way it was trying to feed into the world of adults but the music was really uh it was quite sophisticated, and that uh, I can look back on that now and say I wouldn't have known that, but it, it worked. It really worked. So, you know, I've always been. When I work, I'm a bit of a loner. I, I like to just figure things out by myself, and that was that's been with me from an early age right through till now. Even when I collaborate, I like to squirrel away and do my bit with giving myself time and space to think about it. Now, how did you come to the decision that you would write mostly the music and Chris would write most of the lyrics? Was that just something that you were more interested in just the musical composition, or how did it happen? Well, um, I think that Chris and I were really uh, fortunate when we met. Chris wrote great songs all by himself, and... Uh, uh, he, but his lyrics were way, way beyond anything that I had ever written. You know, there was, a, there was nearly, it's two and a half year, it's nearly three years actually, age gap between us. And when you're 15, that's quite a lot of years to be um, you know, behind somebody. So Chris gave me some lyrics and I was just knocked out with them. And it just felt like a really... Uh, great thing to do when he gave me some lyrics. I put tunes to them immediately. And like much in our relationship, we never really discussed it. It was unsaid that it works that way. Let's not break it. <laughs> now, is it is it sort of, just when you're younger into the career, is it sort of something where, you know, you're writing the music and you're singing, but they're not your lyrics. Is that something you have to come over or is that just something that makes it that much easier for you? No, you know, um, no, I never felt that. I felt that I, I felt that Chris always expressed everything really well and and reflected um, our lives uh, as we were together at that point. Um, certainly in the, in the early days, I think you know um, what happens as you get older is you develop your own interests and take on things. And so I wouldn't say I've ever found it difficult to sing Chris's lyrics, but sometimes uh, there'll be differences of outlook or something um, between us, but not very often. 
but I think that alludes to what you're saying. When we first met, our ideas were absolutely aligned. And weirdly enough, I think our ideas are aligned completely now. We're just in a very different place. Now, as a musician and someone who has had to change tour dates because of the the, the coronavirus, how does that affect, how does it affect you? I always try to figure out, once, when COVID started and the lockdown started to begin, you know, we none of us knew how long it was going to be. Well, there's a difference between people I know, you know, who just, you know, who have day jobs, and the people like you that go on the road, that's, you know, your yeah. thing. What did you think when it first started? Did you think it would last as long as it did? And were you scared at any time of it just going, this is taking away what I love to do? Um, it was a it was a very strange time for us because we we'd been over in the states until I, I think I left on the third of March last year. After we did a few, you know, we did uh, Madison Square Gardens with Paul and Alex, and we did a few dates by ourselves. And that you know at that time when we did that, it felt like the very beginning of that year, which is going to be a spectacular year of touring. And, you know, that package is a dream package for us. It really works well. They're great, and so are we. And so you know, it, makes for, it makes for a really good evening. But the, the talk of coronavirus was all around. But I remember how I interpreted it at the time. as something too fantastical to ever really properly touch us. And um, I think many people were like that. And within uh, under two weeks of getting back to London, we were in lockdown. And so that long, strange journey began. I've never known, um, you know, I guess it all depends where you were, but in London, the lockdown was absolute, total. You know, we've got dogs, we can walk our dogs, but we would avoid other people. You know, and worry when you see someone walking towards you. All that sort of stuff was a... Very, it was a very odd time, quiet time. Air got cleaner in London. You know, there were some upsides to it. But spend a lot of time with my family, which I don't always get to spend, you know, in, in my line of work. So there were some upsides, but it was definitely a time for reflection, wasn't it? And of course, none of us have ever known anything like this in our lifetimes. I know, you know, we were talking about that the other day. I mean, you know, in New York and Philly, they had the AIDS breakout. And that was years ago, the pandemic. But that's the closest we've seen it. And, you know, I mean, you think about it and being a music lover, I was like, damn, like I had all these concert tickets bought. And I'm like, I, I don't know if they're going to they're going to cancel. You know, some of them are coming back, some are changing tours. And um, yeah, it's just like for, for you now. How, how was your creativity during the pandemic did you feel yourself working on some new music or you just wanted to kick back and say wow after 40 years i have time off well a bit of all all that stuff you know uh squeeze have not recorded any new stuff since um the knowledge um i've been working on stuff myself just because that that way felt easier for me and in fact we had a bubble with our family and some of our extended family and so we started working together at my studio and doing weekly covers, uh, just putting them up on YouTube. And we did, we did that for about three months. And that actually felt like 
not only was it a joyful thing to do, to not think about this is a record or this is anything or let's just do a cover that we can all play and make it sound good and then we'll just put it out there and move on. So that was great. That was great for us as a family. Uh, and people absolutely um, loved it. I got a lot of good responses from that. And um, I, I'm very proud of that time. That was, uh, for the family, that was the best thing for all of us uh, in our extended family. It's the best thing. You know, a bit sort of uh, Carter family, English style <laughs> <laughs> So... You also you, you do a solo tour. You you, you had a solo tour scheduled in it's going to be twenty twenty two in support of the food banks. Tell me how you got involved in that. And it's you know it is such a important important thing because people don't know. I mean, people don't know. You know, I live in a nice area, but there's people who are hungry. I mean, we would go to the Dollar Tree and get twenty dollars worth of canned goods and stuff and just drop it off places because we could. And especially during the pandemic, a lot of people stopped working and it was devastating. What made you get involved in it? And uh, and is it you know why is it so near and dear to your heart? Um. Well, uh, I don't want to over dramatize it, but you know I grew up in a single parent family, um, and we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, I didn't ever go hungry, but I'm sure my mum did at some points. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, I remember the shame of feeling poor sometimes, you know, um, me begging my mum that I didn't want to go have free school meals because because of the stigma attached that everyone would know that you're, you're a kid who, who's on free school meals. So I certainly empathise with that, and I think that... With all, you know, if I'm being political, I'm being political about Britain. I can't be political about anywhere else. I think in Britain, there's enough money to make those things not happen if there's a political will to address the problems of poverty and what, and what get people there. You know, there's too much blame attached uh, f for people who don't want to really look into what that brings to society as a whole. And so... I'm not a very good organiser, but one thing I can do is attract a certain amount of attention and garner people up to to help out, you know. And I was really, I was proud that, um, you know, I was able to work with people who work in food banks, the main food bank charity here, Trust and Trust, doing a, a, an amazing job. And I just felt like a really small part of helping. And, uh, you know, we need to respect everyone you know um you know I, i'm a successful person um financially um but not not everyone is and some people are very far from successful and but our society is too polarized into having have nots you are successful and your band successful how did squeeze start what was where how did you guys start the band up and and what do you think has led to your pop just your Everyone likes Squeeze. I seriously, you're, I mean, I don't want to sit like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but it's true. Like you're one of those bands that everybody goes, yeah, we like. I mean, you never hear someone say, eh, we don't like Squeeze. Everyone likes you guys. I mean, it's just honest. But how did you guys start? Uh, well, um, I was, as I said, I was playing through, throughout. You know, when I was ten, eleven, twelve. When I was thirteen, I met Jules, actually, a, a mutual friend. 
PayPal, who actually um, lives just outside Philadelphia now. But uh, she knew Jules, and she knew me. Uh, she, uh, and uh, we, I was at school with Kate, and she said to me, you should meet this guy. He's a really good piano player, and I think you'll get on. Um, so he was selling a guitar for five pounds, uh, Jules. And so I went to see it on behalf of uh, another friend, but also as a chance to meet him. And the guitar was useless. It wasn't worth one pound, let alone five <laughs> Um, but Jules was, you know, he and I had not never met anyone else who played. So we started playing together. And I'd know, I'd known Jules, I guess, about a year and a half before I met Chris Difford, uh, I, I, replying to an advert that he put in a local sh- local store window. And when I met Chris, uh, Chris really sparked a whole different thing. With Jules, we were two musicians playing with Chris. I became more of a writer and, uh, you know, Chris had a body of songs already and I had a few that I'd, I'd written. So really Chris and Jules for me were separate things for maybe six months. We have a, Chris and I had a totally different band, uh, before we had squeeze, but then, you know, once I hit on the idea of bringing Jules and Chris together, I think that's really the start of, uh, squeeze how long long did it take you guys to get that record deal because you know you always hear different stories and things now you know there aren't really record deals that's changed but back then it was all about the record deal or playing top of the uh, top of the pops or you know mtv how long did it take you guys to get a record deal and was it very grueling or or, i mean how did it happen well you take it that that Chris and I met in, 19, in the summer of 1973 and by the fall of 73 there was me Chris and Jules playing and by 74 we had the first band that was called Squeeze uh, we found it really hard to get gigs for like 18 months um, and then then we started gigging regularly in 75, 76 we started going to the pub circuit both around London and starting to break out of London. But there were loads of bands and also loads of venues um, doing that. So it took us until 1977 to get a record deal. Um, and, you know, when you're sort of 18, 19, 20, those three or four years felt like about 15 years, you know. You know how it is. It's just desperate to get started. But we needed, I have to say, we needed to learn our chops as well. So we were always good and we were always creative. Um, but it took quite a long time for us to settle on who who we actually were. Because every style of music that came along, because you're so sponge-like at that age, you know, we'd jump on it and devour it and, and a little bit of that would become us. Um, so everything... And also, the everything of music from current music at that point, you know, from Lou Reed and David Bowie and Sparks, to going back to rock and roll record and blues records that, you know, people 10 years older than us would have listened to, all of that stuff went in and became part of what we did. Now, you mentioned the pub circuit. You have to have a horror, some horror stories from those days, because I've heard some of these pubs were... Uh... 
just out of control. Did anything ever bad happen to you guys when you were playing? Uh, well, the worst thing that re- that happened to us actually was at a college. It was a college gig. We played at a veterinary college. And because it was punk time, I think they got some of the animal pieces that were in the veterinary college and threw them at us as a sort of punk gesture. I think, I'd like to think in affection, but... You know, I'm not 100% sure. But actually was, I speak as a vegetarian then, it was absolutely disgusting. And really, you know, the whole thing about getting spat at, that was pretty, that was pretty awful as well. And was not so prevalent for squeeze, but when it happened, just not something you really want. Now, how important were videos to your career? Because it's funny, as I said, I remember seeing that video. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of videos being made in America. How important were they for you? Uh, do you know what? I just lost you there. I lost the You froze. Okay. But you're back now. Yeah. Okay. I was asking, how important were videos for you guys? Because, you know, as I said, that's when I first found you guys. And it was before yeah. MTV. And we weren't making bands, weren't really making videos in America. But it seems like the English bands were making them. I mean... Was that something that was very popular over there that just we eventually got to? Yeah, I guess it, you know, it caught on. For us, we made videos from, you know, for the first, from the first album, there was one. From the second album, there were two. You know, it was a bit patchy for us, but uh, definitely some of the stuff that got made had traction for us and definitely introduced us to a whole different audience in America. Um, and did a, a lot of groundwork for us, although we were, you know, we were doing pretty incessant touring in the States as well, um, which was, a, you know, it was a great time to uh, to be touring. All the acts we had open for us, we had, we had uh, Bon Jovi open for us at this club in New Jersey once. It was <laughs> before, you know, when they, were, when they were really just getting started and they were phenomenal then. They were really, they were one of the bands I remember opening for us that really emerged fully formed. You know, just they knew what they wanted to do and they did it really well. What was it like when you first came to America? Was it an exciting time? Had you been to America before you first came here to tour? America was everything I dreamt, you know, I wanted to go to America ever since I could remember. Um, and when we first arrived in whatever it was, May or June 1978, uh, it did not disappoint at all. You know, uh, um, growing up so much of uh, American culture being a big influence on us, although we were very British, very English, still it was a massive, massive influence. And going to the place where it all came from gave it some context that had been lacking before. You know, things like just experiencing, I think we, we came in at the tail era of um, still having massive cars. <laughs> Seeing loads of those on the streets was astounding. How, how friendly people were, what, what scene there was also quite scary in New York um, at certain, certain points. It was a lot wilder, I think, because 
uh, like the economics of New York City meant that people could afford to live there. <laughs> and so it was different. It was different and quite vibey, but there was also an edge. Now, for you, looking back, what what do you think was the song that catapulted you guys to the next level? Was it Tempted? I mean, what, or do you just think it was your body of work? I mean, how did you guys were constantly on the uprise? What what do you think was the song that did that the most? Uh, well, on the east coast of America, I think a lot of stuff from Archie Bargy pulling muscles and if I didn't love you really hit home. And Tempted, I think, uh, would be the uh, icing on the cake for us, although only an airplay hit. We, we, um, you know, it felt like it was going to happen for us, and then it did happen with the last album we did before we split up uh, for us. Not a massive chart success. I think we've been one of those bands that have always nearly got there and <laughs> sort of somehow managed to evade that uh all-conquering success. Not that I'm unhappy with the degree of success that we've got, because I think it's good for us. Why did you uh, split up that first time? Because, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about mental health, and I tell you that five years of touring and doing an album every year and writing without any proper break at all will do your head in if you're 20 when you start doing that, you know. I, I can only imagine what it must be like for people who really go through that pressure or, you know, if there's only one of you, you know, you have to be a really, really special person to be able to put up with that, even though it might be everything you always wanted, and to stay safe, I think. We just we just needed some time off, and that was the only way we knew how to put the brakes on us to say, right, that's it. We're, you know, the band has sort of started to implode as well, Gilson was drinking. Uh, his drinking was completely out of control. Not that I hold that against him. It's just where he was then. So it became like a competition for him to try and break out of whatever straitjacket he felt he was in. And uh, certainly one of those became the band, you know. Now, how did, what is it like when you decide to get back together? How does that happen? Is it a phone call? Is it like, you know, I always think it's it's... Because you do, you do go through so much, and people don't know that. People think, oh, the life of a rock star. But you're right. You're on the road. You're touring. You're getting up to do the damn calls to the radio station. And people don't see that side of it. They always think, they only, they, as I say, it's, there's, why, there's reasons why it's called show business. A lot of it's business. And only 45 minutes to two hours of show. Yeah. So I think when, when you sat there and decided to get back, how does that happen? Like, because you guys went through a lot. And is it like someone who tries to get back with an old girlfriend, they call like two years later out of the blue and go, hey, maybe we should try to make this work. I mean, how did you guys decide to get back? Well, um, I had, I booked a gig uh, for, uh, it was just a solo gig to, as a benefit. To, uh, a mate of mine's mum had died in this local hospice. And so I did a show for them to raise money for them. Uh, brilliant work they do. And um, um, and all of Squeeze decided uh, via phone calls, I expect there was a bit of skullduggery going on behind the scenes, but uh, to come back together and do that show as a surprise. So we did. And, um, 
you know, the uh, it was undeniable the power of the band when we got back together was really great, and it was like it felt like we had unfinished business. We'd had three years apart, and it felt like we were ready to go again. I think we were. Uh, um, so you know, from that gig onwards, it was it was uh, obvious that, that we should uh, reform. You know, and I think. Um, <clears throat> that time that we reformed, it was a very odd time for music. And, of course, things constantly change and evolve. And where Squeeze was at as a band, we were still one of those bands that played really well together. So we made an album where everyone overdubbed everything. <laughs> you know, we never played together. And and that's what the album sounded like. It wasn't, wasn't our best album, although... Now we're, we've sort of deconstructed the songs that were on Cozy Fan, Tutti Frutti, that's the record. Um, and we play them beautifully now. But they just sounded all angsty in 80s with sharp elbows and production values that are way, way too polished. Perhaps cocaine juice, who knows? Now, you asked, but then you broke up again in 99. Then you got back together again. It's like, how, what happened on, the, on that one? Um, oh, by by that time, I think Chris, uh, it was Chris, Chris's decision to leave. Um, he felt like it was going nowhere. Um, and he'd also started working on some other stuff. Uh, I think he felt like he should spread his wings. So um, by the time we made our last record, I think Chris had decided that he was leaving anyway, but left it until the last minute to actually say so. It's a difficult thing to say for anyone. They want to terminate something. But really, he was right. You know, he was right. It was a good time for us to split then. And uh, and I really thought at that point uh, that, that uh, that would be it. Because I think it launched both Chris and I into different worlds. You know, I did a lot of touring and recording by myself and discovering a lot about how I was outside of the partnership. You have to bear in mind, I was like 42 or something. You know, I spent, since I was 15, up to that time in a, in a partnership. And so to be outside of that partnership was a good thing for me. And uh, I learned a lot about, about my own, how tenacious I am and how I want this to succeed and how... You know, when I put the fluffers together, we had a, such a great band and a great time. It was everything that Squeeze had not ended up being. And so, you know, I essentially went through to to starting again, doing all the small gigs and touring a lot, but discovering in my own heart and soul that, hey, this is what I really want to do, and I'll do it, whatever happens. B, to learn from to learn from the like times when you're playing gigs to next to no one and so what you can gain from that as well as the things that you wished were happening because all those things I hate to sound like a self-help menu but but they really do make you stronger and I feel I enjoy this time now more than I've ever enjoyed my career like for the last say 
10 years. It's been amazing. Because you've been doing both. You've been doing solo and you've been squeezing stuff. And I, I want to, who came up with the idea for the album Spot the Difference? Because I remember, I was like, that's just such a cool idea. Because you always think that, you know, songwriters, you guys, you you mature. You get older. You, you're, your talents change. Who came up with the idea? Um, it was a way of trying to wrestle back control for um, copyrights that were never ours in the first place. So if we re-recorded everything, you know, it's the album is very hard. It's very hard to go back and recreate what you did when you're 22 or something. And adding up with the same people, either, except for Chris and I and Paul Carrick came on, uh, on some of that too. But it was uh, instructive. You got to correct mistakes. The version of Black Coffee in Bed on Spot Difference is my favorite version because I can sing the song down. I couldn't really sing it when we first when we first recorded it. I know that's a version that everyone loves, but for me, it's much better. The Spot Difference version is is better. Why couldn't you sing um, it? Why couldn't you sing it back then? Uh, because my voice, my voice took a long time to develop. I think that my early voice, uh, until I was like 25 or 26, I didn't really know how to sing out, but I sung quieter. And my voice was lower, um, which is why I can still get all my original keys. <laughs> so by the time, say, we did Gifford and Tilbrook, and that, I think that's when I really found my voice, uh, my proper voice. Um, and had control. So, so, you know, to me, it's just a developmental thing. I never knew how to do anything, and so would stumble. I mean, sometimes it would be right, and other times it wouldn't. I love your hat collection, by the way. Oh, everyone does. It's I, I you know, I collect hats, and I, I uh, quick funny story. We had this in, in the other room, and my wife's mom gave her this really, really nice armoire. And she's like, the hat's got to go. And I'm like, man. So now I, I, they're stuck in a closet with me. <laughs> <laughs> so the tour, what can we expect for this tour? I mean, how excited are you to play? And you're playing Hoagie, Hoagie Nation, which, you know, if you're not from Philadelphia, you don't know, you don't, no one knows what a Hoagie is. But um, how excited are you to play now that, you know, is it, is it, and was it easy to get the dates booked? Was it touch and go? I mean, how did that happen? No, I mean, you touched on this earlier on about the whole shutdown time. I think this this was maybe the... So these dates that we're doing now, the third set of arranged dates, uh, having cancelled the previous two. And actually, it was harder, it was much harder to get motivated this time because I just had this feeling that it was all going to somehow conspire not to happen. And, uh, you know, so as recently as today, we've taken our 72 hours before we fly COVID tests and they're negative. So we're definitely coming now. Today, I know we're definitely coming. Nothing is stopping us now. Now, so. now did you guys get to practice? I mean, because I'm sure... Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're in my studio. We, we spent... Uh, well, many weeks prepping what we were going to play and sort of fine-tuning stuff separately. And then um, we have... In fact, we have from Philadelphia, we have Owen Biddle on bass 
playing bass and singing with us, um, which is really great. So, so Owen came over and stayed with us after isolating, and um, we just had a really great time of deciding what other songs we're going to do, how we're going to arrange them, what what we can do. We've got some really exciting stuff. I think that, you know this is the tour when I feel we're the most prepared and going to be the best we've ever been, you know, and we were pretty good last time then, I know, but this, we've just gone to a different level on this set of rehearsals, we're never this together, so it's really exciting. It's exciting, I'm sure, but is, is it also a little nerve, a little nervousness on you because it's been a while and you're like, wait a second, I, I, I got to get used to the big stage again and the, the timing and yeah. the cheering. Do you know what? I thought, I thought so. Before we started work, I was I was quite nervous about that whole thing. But when we actually started, it just went practically on the first day. And what over took that was a feeling of, wow. First of all, we've all really worked. By the time we came together, we all knew what we were going to do. It's just about how to arrange it. But the feeling in the room of getting back together and playing was just amazing. And I think we all really want this. We all really want it to happen. And we're determined to make it the best it's ever been. You know, we feel like we are there now. What's good is too, is the crowds and just the whole vibe. I know you're in, you're in Philly in August, uh, but just anywhere, anywhere you go out, the vibe of people, we're all just dying for this. Everyone's just dying. Like yeah. Everyone's like, holy crap. Live music's yeah. back. I mean, I even yeah. saw a crappy cover band because I wanted to see music. And this band was <laughs> awful. We were supposed to see a Tom Petty cover band, and they canceled. And there's like these guys, and I was like, uh. but uh, now who who comes up with the set list? Do you and Chris work on that together? Yeah, uh, we we do, um, and we each come. You know, we came up with a suggestion of about thirty songs, which we gradually whittle down, and then Chris and I will play through stuff and try and find out where we're at in terms of getting Chris to sing stuff and um, what I'm going to sing and how we're going to arrange the vocals. and just It's just a process of seeing. You, know, you never know what, what works. So by the time that we got to actual rehearsals, we had, I think, 11 songs, which we were working on. 11, I'm calling them new songs. 11 songs we hadn't been touring with before. And we whittled that down. We've got that down to six now. And then we're going to see how we change the set. And that's a really process of sucking to see, I think. What are the songs that you have to play? Like, what are the songs that the people go, you know, people are going to be upset if you go to a Squeeze concert and they don't see that song? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, it feels like... I don't think we can think that way. So, so at the last time of touring, I think we were playing everything that everyone wants, you know, may want to hear out of established songs, a more casual fan. But also towards the end of that touring process, something had happened to us in terms of not being able to deliver it properly. There's a certain sort of malaise that kicks in, no matter how how hard you try. So, I think a, a couple of those songs may take a rest and that's necessary for them to you know I'm going to interrupt myself and say squeeze in the 90s I think got complacent 
and I never want to go back to that place. I think you've got to pay attention to when something's not sounding right. You have to go, well, I guess if we're playing exactly the same arrangement and the song is arranged to the nth degree, you've got to be, you've either got to still make it fresh or if you can't do that, be big enough to say, all right, that's got to rest for a while. We've got to do something else that is invigorating and make the show work so that people don't go, what happened to that, you know? Will you play Up the Junction? I love that song. I that song I play that at least once a week. I have Alexa, and I just that's one of the songs. I don't, it just catches you. I don't know. Do you guys play that live? Yes. Okay. Good. <laughs> well, that's good to that's, know. Tell you that that, that is, that's in there. That one, you know, that's that's one. I'm not, that's one that never seems to get tired, and that's really great. I don't know why that is, but just that's always there. One more question. It's a two-parter. What is your favorite Squeeze song to play live, and what is the Squeeze song that means the most to you personally? Uh, wow, that's really, really hard. Um, I'm going to say... Song I like best at the moment is the is the opening track of Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity. It's called Big Bang, but I don't like the record version. I like the live version that we're doing now. And I I just finished mixing actually of what is going to be a live Squeeze record. And it's got that version on it, the new version, and it is everything I hope the song will be when I wrote it. Um, and the second part of the question was what? Sorry. <laughs> what song means the most to you? Oh, okay. Uh, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, "Tempted," because it felt like "Tempted" felt like a statement from us um, of going to a different place and sounding like a different band, and I'm proud that we could do that. It's still something I love about schools is that we can not, not genre hop it's not lot, it's not like going into a market and choosing this and that but it's just when you love different sorts of stuff and feel that you can play it and it can become a part of you that's a, that's a lovely thing you know and I think that squeeze do that and can do that still so that, but that was the first big leap for us from what we've been before to maybe where we were going next. Well, that was awesome, man. I'm glad you took the time to talk to me. I'm going to try to make it out to Hoagie Nation. This is this summer's been so weird. People go to glentilbrook.com. You can see all his, his solo tour coming out in 2022. Go to squeezeofficial.com. So go go listen to Ups the Junctions today. And you know why I had it throwing some cool for cats? Uh, so people, remember, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 860 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.